This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Please remember to rate and review Polar Geopolitics wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. We've certainly talked a lot in this podcast about China's expanding polar presence. And here in episode 30, we'll drill down even deeper into an issue that's attracted a great deal of attention within the polar geopolitics community. We'll be joined by an expert on China's activity in the Arctic and Antarctic, who'll provide an incisive assessment of Chinese strategy in the polar regions so far. Dr. Nanyi Liu is an associate professor of international law at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, who recently gave a lecture for China's polar elite from government and academia. In that presentation, and here on this episode of Polar Geopolitics, Dr. Liu offers constructive criticism of what he sees as China's outdated approach towards pursuing its interests in the polar regions. I start by asking him to explain the basis of his critique of current Chinese strategy. Did you think that China should abandon what you see as their current approach to the poles? And that's this sort of 19th century thinking of occupying a piece of pie in the poles. And instead, they should change their perspective more towards uh, being a partner, a player in combating global environmental change. Could you perhaps explain that, please? The point of departure of our conversation is a theoretical framework that I uh, have been developing in recent times. Uh, that is inspired by a very frequently used uh, policy term, in national, especially in the national defense strategies of uh, United States, Australia, and United Kingdom. That is the existing rules-based international order. So this has been used so frequently, so often, and also uh, China and Russia have identified by, uh, I think, generally, it is generally agreed now in the Western law, uh, Western policy uh, community and academia that China and Russia are the major challenges to the existing rules-based international order. So once I look into this term, I realize two things. First, the term itself, the rules-based international order, is a neutral term which means it really depends on who is talking about that. Because for the, currently we know what is what exactly is the existing rules-based order. That is uh, uh, American-dominated post-Second World War uh, liberal international system that is embedded with international organizations, contemporary international law, and so on. Uh, and second interesting thing about this term is when media... Uh, think tanks and also lots of academics, both Chinese and Western, when they are when they are debating on this term, the existing rules-based order, lots of them pay most attention to the rules. A very uh, common narrative is w- once China is rising and China has been fastly expanding its presence in in the polar regions, that China is going to violate international law. So. Uh, China is a challenge. China is seen as a challenger in in this sense that China is going to violate international law because, uh, whatever reasons, and a common uh, suspicion or argument is that China has been uh, acting very assertively in the South China Sea. So that will also happen in the polar regions. And from the Chinese academic and policy uh, thinkers' point of view, uh, they have also been trying to debate and saying that. And this is reflected in China's Arctic policy, for example, that was published in 2018, that China is firmly following 
international law, existing international law that is applicable in the polar regions, in the Arctic. And also China has ratified the Antarctic Treaty and most other legal instruments associated with the Antarctic Treaty or the so-called Antarctic Treaty system. So China has been holding international law and China is not going to violate the international law and, and there is no intention to do so and so on and so on. So this debate has been going on for quite a while and we have seen lots of uh, extreme views from both sides. But what I find out is actually the root of this debate is actually not about rules. And I think the polar regions uh, is a very good example. So far, it is fair to say China hasn't violated any contemporary existing uh, international law that is applicable in the Arctic and Antarctica. Uh, but China indeed has been expanding very fast. Like uh, China has built a second icebreaker, a fifth Antarctic research station, uh, in, uh, and also opened a second Arctic research station in Iceland. China has been promoting this concept of so-called uh, polar uh, Silk Road, trying to make use of the Arctic shipping routes and so on and so on. So what's the problem? The problem here is within any order, there is a power structure. So what we have seen that China's rise in the polar region is actually the rising a rising power. And this power is reflected by China's existence or presence in the polar regions, the stations, uh, the scientific research budget, uh, the icebreakers, and so on. So I think the, the kind of the, 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 the doubt or the puzzles from the Chinese side is like, oh, they have been doing this fairly based on Antarctic Treaty System and, and existing international law, such as UNCLOS and United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in the Arctic. And uh, there is nothing wrong with that. And um, why there are still uh, anxieties and, and even blames and uh, attacks on China's rise. And I think if you apply this theoretical framework that I have been developing, that is, once there is a rising power, which means the a rising power will lead to a shifting order, because in an order, there is a power structure, there is a hidden power structure. And we know that, but we don't talk about that all the time. That is, the United States has been the dominant power of the international system since the Second World War. So now there is a rising power. So this would lead to a changing order. And once the order is changing, eventually this changing order will be legitimized by the development of international law. So power won't directly determine international law. But a changing, a rising power will shift the order that will eventually change international law. But also there is another perspective, that is, once the international law is set, for example, the Antarctic Treaty, uh, the Convention on the Conservation of Marine Living Resources in, in uh, Antarctic Marine Living Resources, the Svalbard Treaty, so all those treaties, they are valid. Because once they have set, have been set, they will also demarcate the boundaries of rights and obligations of, of all those powers within this order, how they can play. So that is the root of the anxieties from the West regarding China's rise in the polar regions. But on the other hand, here comes to this kind of your question, kind of the core answers to your question. That is, on the other hand, while China is rising, this rise 
and also what China's Arctic policy and also the uh, China's practice in Antarctica so far has been trying to defend its interest. Like it, what China has has been always trying to say, okay. Uh, we have legit, legitimate interest in, in the Arctic high seas, uh, the fi- commercial fisheries. We have the legitimate interest in the Arctic for the shipping. We have legitimate rights to fish in the Southern Ocean. Uh, we have legitimate rights to, to establish a, a, a special protected areas in Antarctica. So all this practice of behavior, even though it is still within the, the current, let's say, the existing rules-based order in the polar regions, that generates anxiety and generates fear because China is only thinking about itself. China is only thinking about its own so-called national interest. And that's why I would say if, if that is only, if, if China's interest in Antarctica, which would only be occupy a piece of pie, here I, I, don't, I do not mean the territorial claim because that has been firmly ruled out by China's Arctic policy uh, published in 2018. And also China has ratified the Antarctic Treaty according to Article 4 of the Antarctic Treaty uh, that a new, no new territorial claim will be uh, acknowledged and recognized. So I'm not talking about China is going to, going to put a territorial claim in Arctic or Antarctica in the future. I'm talking about China is thinking of trying to make full economic use of the resources in the Antarctic, Arctic Antarctica. But if you only think about yourself on this uh, extractive interest, then your no matter how hard you try, you are trying to defend your rights, you are not providing a vision of a new order for for the polar regions. That means the anxieties and the fears and even pushbacks uh, will, will, will also continue from the existing uh, incumbent, existing powers or incumbents like the Arctic states and, and those Antarctic, Antarctic claimants. So this is the big picture uh, that I have been talking about. So is what you're what you're putting forward here, is it somehow a critique of the way China has approach the polar regions? Is it the way they have perhaps um, communicated their their interests and intents? Because, of course, that a lot of this is about intentions. It's maybe not exactly what they're doing or yeah. not doing right now, but it's the intentions, whether it's yes. in 2048 or 2030 yes. or, or whatever, what, the, what China intends to do. I think that is what's causing a lot of the uh, the anxiety yes. in, in the uh, within the established order. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. So, I mean, the, as I said, the root of the anxiety from the West regarding China's rise in the polar region is China's rising power that may shift uh, the existing uh, existing order that is in the polar regions. So now, when talking about the order, we, if we see the, the development of the current international law, you can easily see that uh, those incumbents like United States and Germany or uh, Australia, they are sitting in the driver's seat. So all those current initiatives, uh, which have been uh, international legal initiatives, such as the Polar Code, the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement, uh, the marine protect to establish marine protected areas in the polar in the uh, in the Southern Oceans, they have all been initiated by incumbents. So they are in the driver's seat. But once the power structure is changed, then they may not sit in the driver's seat anymore. And a, a good example is the negotiation of the of the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement because China is a faraway country. It's, they call themselves a near Arctic state, but why China was invited as an equal partner to negotiate the Central Arctic Ocean 
Fisheries Agreement is because China is now the largest distant water fishing uh, country in the world. So that's the power. That won't determine the adoption of the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement directly, but that guarantees China to have a seat to talk about, to discuss that development, and even to play a role in shaping that. So that's the root. That's, a, that's the root of the anxieties from the West. But from the Chinese side, the problem so far is uh, I have conducted a, a thorough literature, literature review uh, over the, all the Chinese publications, on academic publications uh, published over the past 10 years regarding polar law and policy. What I find out is the Chinese vision of the polar region, region so far is, is not future-looking. It's actually very much a pragmatic approach that is driven by uh, economic interest. So they talked about a lot about the use of the Arctic shipping routes. Uh, they talked a lot about how to uh, the fisheries interest in Southern Ocean and Arctic. So, you know, these are interests that can talk about. Of course, there are, are, are rules to discuss, to debate. That's where the tensions currently are, for example, the China's opposition to the establishment of Southern Ocean MPAs. But my argument is, if China's vision of the polar region or China's strategy of the polar region is lack of the vision of the future and cannot provide an alternative for a better future comparing to the current existing or so-called existing rules-based order in the polar region, then China's China's rise in the in the polar regions cannot be smooth. No matter how hard the Chinese scholars and and, and, and government uh, government officials trying to defend themselves that they are strictly following international law. Without because you are writing, you you are you like it or not, you are going and you you are shaking the existing rules-based order in the polar regions because of your rising power. So if if your vision about a new order is not better and is not actually an alternative that can win the heart of the Arctic states and, and also other countries in, that have interest in Antarctica, then your rights cannot be accommodated. So that's my critique from the, on the Chinese uh, polar strategy so far. What could that what could that vision actually look like? I mean, China does say the same sort of uh, cliches that many other countries say about sustainable development in the Arctic yeah. and, and environmental yeah. protection in the Antarctic. They have research stations yeah. in Antarctica. They have some yeah. in yeah. the Arctic as well. What what would it take for a Chinese vision of the future to be more convincing? and more authentic yes. that actually could persuade and, and perhaps yes. um, lessen some of the anxieties within the established orders. Yes. And I think, and I have been just arguing this uh, in, in a book to be published by Brookings very soon, that is, I think China needs a Arctic policy 2.0. So in China's first Arctic policy, it is basically, uh, it, it is actually... I think base, it, it is basically uh, serving a role to justify China has a seat or has a role to play in the Arctic. And China has ratified the Antarctic Treaty, so that's a different story. And China will follow international laws or these kind of declarations. But what China can do to construct a, a different vision of the future or on the future of the polar region is 
to have an Arctic policy or a polar policy that kind of clarify or provide detailed plans regarding how to strike a delicate balance between economic development and environmental protection in the polar region. Because the polar regions are the most vulnerable uh, parts of the world uh, that are experiencing the impacts of climate change. And so all the Arctic states, um, most part of the Arctic uh, fall into the national jurisdiction. So Arctic states, they of course, they, they are interested in economic development, but they are also very much uh, care about the wild protection of the vulnerable environment. And in Antarctica, uh, the claimants, they claim Antarctic claimants such as Australia, they see themselves as, the, as taking the environmental stewardship of the Antarctic. So, I mean, so far, China's strategy or China's practice is trying to make sure that in the future, China will have a piece of pie, no matter what that piece of pie would look like economically in the polar regions. But if China has cannot give a very clear idea, or, or let's, let's say the other way, if China can, in its future polar policy, and also supported by its practice, to to provide a concrete, convincing plan regarding how can we strike a delicate balance between environmental protection and economic development, that is, I think that is the opportunity for China to construct a new order based on its power. So, so far, this rising power is seen as disruptive by the Arctic states, uh, not, not everyone, but some Arctic states and also the Antarctic claimants, such as Australia and New Zealand. Well, I think not, this is not official view, but I think we can largely conclude that. But the thing is, there is an opportunity there because the power is is kind of a China's power is growing. So, and it is as long as China will, I mean, the Chinese economy will keep rising, then the China's power in the polar region will rise. But how to best use this power to construct a, to construct a new or to present a new vision of of the order in the polar regions? That is the key for China's rise, but also that will also give the world a very good example of and provide lessons for achieving sustainable development. So, so far, let me give you a concrete example. That is, China has been arguing within the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, Kamala, regarding the establishment of marine protected areas. And uh, kind of the core of Chinese argument against uh, those proposals is Oh, Kamala must strike a balance between commercial fishing and protection, or protection and use, according to the uh, Convention on the, on the Conservation of Marine Living Resources, Antarctic Marine Living Resources. So, I mean, that's that's the core argument China has been uh, presenting over the past almost a decade now, maybe it's at least seven years, that, that Kamala needs to strike a balance. But China has so far has so far not has not been successfully in presenting its own view or own plan regarding what exactly does China mean by that by that balance. If that balance only means uh, economic use, then then this is a missed opportunity, and then China's rights will be difficult to be just to be justified. So that's it. That's that's kind of my my view on this. 
it seems like to me it's a, it's somehow a matter of um, of public diplomacy how how China presents its uh, its interests and intentions and intentions of course it's hard to sort of put your finger on it right what do they really want one one thing that comes to mind is this book uh, by uh, Anne Marie Brady uh, from a few years ago yeah. uh, China as a Pole of Great Power where she goes into uh, quite a bit of detail she speaks Chinese reads Chinese and uh, says yeah. that China creates two very different narratives whether they're speaking to a domestic audience in China yeah in Chinese yeah. language or to an international yeah. uh, audience in English or other languages yeah. that yeah. they'll say one thing to the world uh, that they want to have yeah. sustainable development and environmental yeah. protection and so forth. But with their, when they yeah. communicate to a domestic audience, they're saying, yeah. well, the reason why we justify spending so much money on, on polar research and other investments like icebreakers and yeah. things is because eventually there's, there's a huge amount of resources there and other economic advantages mm-hmm. that we'll gain from this, from these, um, from these yeah. investments. How do, how are those, first of all, do you agree with this analysis of Anne-Marie Brady? And if, um, if so, uh, how do, the, how are these things reconciled and how should the world react to this potential say one thing, yeah. but really mean another thing? Yeah, I think, uh, so first, I don't engage with uh, Brady's Professor Brady's work because I mean that is up to her analysis uh, of Chinese practice. What I critique uh, in my research is when it comes to the future of the polar regions. China, what I believe, and also you have captured this point, is I think China's polar strategy is. Polar strategy is at a crossroad that the Chinese, both the Chinese academia and Chinese government officials haven't been thinking about which kind of the future does China want in the polar regions. So that's why that's I call a lack of imagination. So once once they are a lack of imagination, then they only see the short-term benefits, those uh, potential economic interests in the polar regions. But what they are really missing is a lack of imagination about the, of their own vision of the future of the polar regions. So I mean, so this probably also could answer uh, Brady's analysis, uh, your question regarding Brady's analysis. That is. Do they really have, so so far, I believe, they don't even have two different narratives to talk to, uh, to talk to one to the domestic audience and one to the international audience. That They don't even have an, a, a concrete narrative because they haven't even thought about that. That's why when I was giving this presentation to the Chinese polar, polar community uh, in Chinese, and I mean, it's basically... Go, it basically goes viral because people are just so touched by by this shortcoming. That is, you have to think about it first. So that's also why I'm calling for China's Arctic Policy 2.0 because, yes, the China's first Arctic Policy, uh, you can say, I don't know whether they have a different version to the domestic audience, but as far as I can see, that is a policy to justify, only to justify China's presence and expansion in the Arctic. Rather, uh, Arctic Policy 2.0 is going to elaborate the Chinese vision of the future of the Arctic and also that will have an impact on Antarctica as well because it is the same group of academics and government officials who are uh, actually managing China's polar affairs. So, yeah, so so this is totally a different question from uh, what Brady has analyzed. So what you're saying then is that the Chinese polar strategy, Arctic and Antarctic, I guess you can say 
They're two different mm. strategies. The first incarnation of these are somehow incoherent, fragmented. But you think that China needs to have a much more integrated, coherent strategy that could persuade people that Chinese intentions in the long run are more benign than they're often perceived to be. So in some ways, what you're saying, there is, at this point, there is no such strategy. There is, when it comes to the intentions of where China wants to be in the polar regions 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. I think just to be to be slightly uh, different from what you just said, I think what the pathway about China's polar strategy so far is towards how could China use use the polar regions? Use means, I think mainly means economic use. But my critique is, if this is going to be the future, then China cannot really achieve what they want. Because you cannot just talk about use in the, in the polar regions where there are vulnerable environment ecosystems and also there are uh, uh, major powers, middle powers, who are all involved in this space. So that's why I think it is at a crossroad. And also I believe my talk to the my talk at the beginning of this month may have some impact. That is, from now on, they should think about a concrete vision about how they could balance and what exactly they mean by balance of the use and the protection. And I think they have done some they have tried they have done some some experiment. For example, China when China hosted the 40th uh, Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting, uh, they organized a special meeting regarding the balance of the use and protection. But that is not convincing yet because they haven't delivered a concrete plan on that. So that is missing. That is what that is what is missing. And that is actually what is needed in China's polar strategy. And if they don't have that, they will not achieve what they may want to achieve uh, in the future. So, so you see, I'm actually uh, my current research, and that's why I want I I, I really uh, enjoy this opportunity to to have a conversation with you, is trying to go beyond that that debate about oh what is China's intention you know China's so I know that's actually a fake question because when you ask what is China's intention that is already following uh, Professor Brady's pathway that is China has a very malicious intention, but it's hidden, but I'm not asking that question and I'm not I'm not assuming they are good or bad. But I'm hoping they can act in a very positive way. And also that will benefit the world and that will benefit themselves. That is what I'm trying to push, the agenda. This is a totally different agenda from the current China debate, which is, which is very much just uh, based on a very, uh, very simplistic narrative about uh, the, the regime of the CCP and then how CCP would rule the world. So that's not what I'm, I'm engaging with. That's very interesting. And you mentioned that your that your presentation uh, had a lot of impact on this uh, this community uh, of people that helped shape Chinese uh, polar uh, policies. Um, could you perhaps uh, articulate who that 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 population is? Who are the the individuals? Who do they represent? What interests do they represent uh, within the Chinese uh, state and Chinese society that create China's polar policy? Is it mostly economic uh, interests? Is it is it scientists? Is it uh, people, geopolitical yeah. theorists? Who, who are the ones that really shape Chinese uh, polar mm-hmm. policy? And, and uh, do some voices have more resonance than others in this uh, in this community? 
Yeah, I think it is it is a quite a vibrant community. Uh, you have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, of course. Uh, they are called. They are not necessarily making the policy, because, but they are coordinating. And then when it comes to science part, you have now the Ministry of Natural Resources uh, who uh, manage the Chinese uh, Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. And then uh, you have academia. There are a number of universities, uh, especially the Ocean University of China, uh, Shanghai Ocean University, Wuhan University. And those universities, they all have very uh, kind of a, uh, strong research teams and academics who are involved in, for example, drafting China's Arctic policy. And also now China is drafting its Antarctic law. And you may know that China is one of only four countries who are contracting parties of the, of the Antarctic Treaty uh, that hasn't had a Antarctic law. So that is being drafted at the moment. So I can't tell who is which kind of interest is dominant. But what, what I can feel is economic interest is no doubt the, the prominent uh, interest that is being considered. So that's why I, I think... That comes back to when they talked about to the so-called domestic audience. That is, uh, I mean, the use is a very good narrative to try to persuade domestic audience. But why, why do you spend so much money on, on science? But if you are talking to scientists, uh, I can tell you, uh, scientists, most scientists, they are not necessarily interested in those uh, in those uh, incentives. Science are science, are science. They are just doing their, their own research. So... Uh, it is uh, quite a vibrant community, which has been attracting more and more interest in China. So that's why, for example, during my talk, I, I have I had more than 350 people who attend uh, across the country uh, listening to my vision about and the critiques about China's polar strategy. So perhaps then, you just to um, to wrap things up, but where do you see? Based upon this talk you gave, based on the reception that it received and, and your ongoing research and your observations of what's happening in China regarding uh, the Antarctic and, and the Arctic, where do you see Chinese polar strategy evolving or developing in the years ahead? So this is kind of a difficult question because I'm not involved in that domestic process. So I guess it would be difficult for me to, 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 to tell exactly. So what I can do is... I shared my vision and my critique and my view about China's polar strategy, as we just discussed, and that was li- that was listened by those policy and lawmakers. And whether they would take my view into account, that's their business. But I think the next step for the Chinese polar community, uh, law and policy community, is definitely to to pass the China's pass China's Antarctic law. And I was actually asked this question regarding, so, I mean, one of the key drafters of China's Antarctic law asking me this question after my talk. They have been fully buying my critiques that China's political strategy currently is lack of a vision of the future, and it can, it doesn't really provide an alternative, and also it doesn't really think about other countries and so on and so on. So then how, if I'm going to draft China's Antarctic law, what I can do? To, to incorporate those critiques. And one thing I said is, well, in, in China's Antarctic law, they could definitely use that as an experiment to reimagine the relationship between human human and nature. And that is an easy uh, legislation to do so because it, this is only a legislation to regulate a very limited 
Chinese activities in, in Antarctica. So why not do something experimental and, and innovative and try then trying to influence the whole world? And so let's kind of uh, what I can say, and they have listened. I hope they will generate something interesting. But apart from that, I can't predict the future. I think it's also affected by many other factors, such as the geopolitical competition in a, in a larger picture, as we are fully aware of the U.S.-China competition, and also the urgency of climate change, and so on and so on. Uh, so we just have to wait and see. But the thing is, if they only think about themselves and only think about using or benefiting economic benefit of expanding their presence in in the polar regions, they will not achieve what they want. Well, Nanyi Liu, uh, Associate Professor at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Thank you very much for joining us here on Polar Geopolitics. It's been a fascinating discussion, uh, really interesting research you're conducting and also having some uh, some impact on the uh, on the community of, uh, of uh, officials and experts in China that are affecting China's uh, polar strategies. So thank you very much for joining us here on Polar Geopolitics. Thank you very much.